This is Brandon Weaver coming to you from the Tin Streamer Broadcast Studios in beautiful Erath County, Texas. My guest today is, uh, he's the embodiment of what Hank Williams preached about in his ballad, Country Boy Can Survive. Justin Rex is a photographer, and he is the guy you want in your corner if the zombie apocalypse comes, or say the uh, grid goes down for months and you have to roam the badlands of Texas looking for fuel and water. Justin is the guy you want to be partnered with. You He'll, he'll get it done and he'll take care of business. Um, Justin Rex. It's just a great name. It's, it's, it's like a character. And Justin Rex is a character. I first met him on assignment for uh, bikepacking.com covering Jared Foster's 2019 adventure media class. Justin was an instructor and uh, just fell in love with the guy at the time. I consider him a, a peer, a friend. And since graduating from Texas Tech, Justin and I have worked on a couple of projects together. And uh, during this episode, we're actually in Kingsville, Texas, working on a project that I was assigned by Texas Monthly to cover a, a company that pioneered the selling of exotic game. I invited Justin to come along and shoot photos, see if we can work his pictures into the story. Uh, we'll see if that happens. And in this episode, we talk about uh, Wyman Menger again comes up. We talk about Justin's career as a, a freelance AP photographer coming the, covering the NFL, working the sidelines. He uh, shot Tom Brady's uh, for the first time as a Tampa Bay Buccaneer. He has covered events on the border, told the stories of people living lives down there and getting by and gaining citizenship. He's worked the panhandle, covering events at a meatpacking plant. He's been all around the state covering vital news stories, covering sports, taking pictures of me, which is very, very important. Uh, in this episode, we also talk about uh, Airwolf comes up. Airwolf. Justin has no idea what Airwolf is. And um, so we chat a little bit about that. And see, Justin's just a few years younger than me. So that's a bit before his time. But we, we kind of have this kinship. When I met Justin, he was driving a OJ Simpson era Bronco, white Bronco, possibly 96. Uh, Justin will correct me on that. It was the last year they made that body style. And um, I'm known if uh, you're one of my high school classmates for my own Bronco, a 1984 Bronco with a uh, jam and sound system, subwoofers, blaring Motley Crue, Van Halen, ACDC. And guess what? Justin's just young enough that that is considered classic rock to him. He loves the Motley Crue. He loves the ACDC. He loves the Van Halen. And therefore, I love Justin Rex. So let's get this thing going with a little royalty-free ACDC guitar riff. Welcome to the Ten Streamer Podcast with my good friend Justin Rex. And uh, how you doing, Justin? Pretty good, man. How are you? Yeah. You excited? I'm excited. Been long down the road. Yeah. What are we doing? We are in Kingsville, Texas, getting ready to photograph a, and write about a Broken Arrow Ranch and their operation for harvesting Neil Guy down here in South Texas for restaurants across Texas and I guess the U.S. too. What do you think about this uh, story, this subject matter? I mean, I think it's pretty cool. It's something that I have a unique interest in, but I mean, it's also something we worked on last year uh, or, or I guess earlier this year. Uh in a way with the exotics and that part of it. Uh, but this is kind of a unique, this is a very uniquely Texas part of it, right? Like, like the guy was telling us today, 
they their only real competition is in Lanai, Hawaii. And it's not an easy thing to do in the rest of the country, just the way the rest of the country is laid out. Plus we have the unique, uh, uh, population of exotics here in Texas. And so this is a, uh, this is a truly Texas story. <laughs> very true. Yeah. Very Texas. Very true. Let's back up a little bit and talk about, I'm a writer mm-hmm. and you're a photographer. Yep. One of the most prolific photographers I know. You don't know many prolific photographers. <laughs> well, if you've seen a Houston Texans game or a Texas Tech game picture, mm-hmm. it's probably been taken by Justin Rex. You've seen at least one of his photos. You've probably seen one at some point. Yeah. So you, I'm definitely not the only person there, though. So you're an AP photographer. Or you, you, I have a, I'm an AP freelancer. Okay. So I've, I freelance for them. There's a pretty distinct difference between one of their photographers and their freelancers. Uh, so we're a contractor. I'm a contractor, uh, and there's a bunch of us. Uh, so they're a client of mine, basically. Whereas they have staffers that hire us that actually work there. And how long have you been doing that? Uh, I started with them in 2020 during COVID or the COVID season, I guess. Uh, through that, they needed more photographers uh, because some photographers kind of fell out, weren't available. And uh, so I was able to pick it up from that. And then I've been working with them ever since. What's been your favorite sport to photograph? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, probably football, just because I'm so used to it at this point. But I mean, into, at least for what I've shot for AP, probably the most interesting thing I ever shot was a women's college uh, rugby game in the mud. That was a that was a funny day. Uh, but that was, that was not, that was just a working with friends kind of thing. That was not a, an AP job, obviously. Where'd you shoot that? Uh, that was at Texas Tech. Is that our mutual friend, Cody yes. Clark? Yes. I was photographing a game, I think Cody's senior year. Uh, and I just, I had a volleyball tournament I had to get to inside the stadium or inside the arena that was next door to the field that they were playing at. And I got there early just to see it. And, uh, shoot it a little bit before I had to go into the volleyball game. Cause volleyball, volleyball is a hard sport to shoot. It is constant back and forth in a very tight space. You can never really judge where anything's going. Like it, with football, you can, especially when you've covered a team for a season or several games. Um, I kind of have an idea of what the offense and the defense are going to do on a given play. Like I can see how they're set up, know roughly have an idea of what's going to happen. So I can kind of be set up for it. I know what part of the field to be in. Volleyball's there's no play being set up. There's not like a the, it, there's not a quarterback setting everything up. There's there's it can only go so many ways. But trying to get to the ball and the player fast enough is sometimes really hard. So it's any photographer that's listening to this that's photographed volleyball is going to understand what I'm saying. It's just frustrating. It's like giant ping pong. Yeah. So there's a lot more people with more people over yeah. a larger space. So. Justin Rex is one of those people you see on the sidelines of the football of an NFL game that gets ironed out from time to time. They have cameras dangling off of them. Um, here's here's a question I think that I, I get a lot from our viewers, our listeners. It's the the mailbag. I get a lot of write-in uh, questions. Um, why are there so many photographers on the sideline? That's a very good question. I mean, there's a million of them. And a lot of them have cell phones. 
and I would really like a lot of them not to be there. <laughs> it, that's a that's a that's something that is going to be unique to whichever team and stadium you're at. Uh, some places are more friendly to having more people there. Some places aren't. It's very dependent on where you're at and who's doing what, whether it's a college game or a pro game. Pro games are much more restrictive. Uh, those those places, they're they're highly regulated. Whereas a college sometimes is highly regulated and sometimes it's not. It kind of just depends. It also depends on how many people really want to be there. Uh, you know, a school that doesn't have as big of a draw, there's not going to be as many people down on the field. Whereas a school that it's kind of the only game in town, there's, there's going to be a lot of people that want to be there. Um, a lot of places they're going to want photos from there, video from there. So, I mean, it's it just kind of depends. You ever get in um, tussles with the other photographers about uh, getting in certain spots? Did you have to, you know, like anything you do, especially on a professional scale, there's kind of a little bit of a hazing or like, hey, it's the new guy. Just kind of tell him that he has to shoot from the corner or <laughs> anything like that. Were you given a hard time? Not necessarily given a hard time when I was in Lubbock um, or when I was first in Lubbock. When I was a student. What about at the Texans? The Texans, no, because I was working for a company that was kind of had enough clout that you knew you didn't screw with them because a lot of those other guys during the week will also maybe work for AP on a college day. Cause so like the way it works for at least when I was in Houston, the way it worked with AP is their staffer was the editor underneath the stadium somewhere like back where the photo work area was. Um, and that he had two freelancers that he would hire, uh, that generally his two, what I would assume he would consider his better football photographers. One of them would, would he would hire to work on one side of the field and the other would work on the other side of the field. One of us would cover the Texans on offense and the other one of us would cover, uh, the opposing team on offense. And then you just, cover defense too. But I mean, you kind of get defense at the same time. So that so we were like the guys that would shoot the NFL, but then a lot of these other guys who are working for other entities on Sunday also will be hired through AP to shoot college, especially during basketball season when there's a lot more stuff going on, right? So they didn't really want to get on your bad side and piss off the AP editor because then they wouldn't get hired. Right. So, but, uh, when it wasn't game day necessarily, like maybe during college, uh, basketball season, there would be conversations back in the workroom about, yeah, you know, like before you were in town, like I got a lot more work and stuff like, I'm like, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm here to do a job and, uh, it's like if that's the competitive market. Right. So, I mean, like you just kind of have to roll with that. Yeah, well, you don't take any guff. But, no, I mean, I remember throwing elbows when I was in college yeah. uh, on the on the field because there'd be some guy that thought what he was doing was really important, and I thought what I was doing was really important, and he'd get in your way and kind of be a jerk about it, and I'd remind him he was a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, but also I don't really get bothered anymore uh, on fields. So, Do you ever get intimidated? I get intimidated Just, by the job. I don't get intimidated by the people. Just in life, you don't get intimidated? Uh, sometimes. It depends on, like, I get intimidated by circumstance. I don't really, people don't really intimidate me. Circumstances will intimidate me. So, like, my first NFL game happened to be a preseason game 
against the Buccaneers when Tom Brady was there. Tom Brady, probably the most, one of the more famous people I've had to photograph. Hang on a second. I I need to pick up that name that you just dropped. Uh Uh-huh. Tom Brady. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Tom Brady. So that, it was my first NFL game. I did not feel prepared for it. I kind of had an I, I knew what needed to be done, but I didn't know the system. And there was a lot of pressure because of who was in the game to get things right. And so it was kind of a trial by fire. And the next day, I realized I had been so stressed out that entire game. I didn't enjoy the experience at all. I hated it. I hated every second of that game. <laughs> and luckily, I had a card runner uh, that was running cards back under the stadium for me. Uh, oh, and the other part of this is I had to like learn this new wireless transmission system that I'd never used before, had no idea how to use it. So I was like relearning how to use my camera on the fly during this game. And I had a card runner for when that system broke because it was probably going to broke because it was probably going to break because this was the first time they'd ever used it. And that guy had luckily been on enough fields with enough photographers that he could kind of like coach me through it a little bit. And he, he could tell I was stressed out. And then the next day when I woke up after the game, like I could barely walk just from how sore my body was just from being stressed out for four or five hours. <laughs> so I get intimidated if it's a circumstance where I have no idea really what I'm, or I feel like I have no idea what I'm doing. Uh, and then I eventually get over it. Yeah. But yeah. That's, that's what intimidates me. There's a lot of pressure in what we, what we do writing, take, you know, taking pictures, producing content because you've got to be fluid and you've got to go with the flow. And like with what we're doing here today, tomorrow, neither one of us really know what's going to pan out tomorrow. Um, just some backstory on what we're here. We're in Kingsville. As Justin said, we're in a holiday and express and Justin's sweating pretty good. Did you turn the AC on? I did, but it never came it on. It never came on. We may stop and turn the AC on cause it's, uh, it's down near, uh, it's pretty humid right now. Yeah. But mostly I'm, uh, was that a monster? What is that? That's your phone. <laughs> that, that was weird. I never heard it make that noise. That's vibrating. That's what it's doing. Yeah, it's on the box. How how, how professional? How unprofessional? No, I'm uh, Brandon. I'm sweating because I'm I'm intimidated by the circumstances. Yeah, you're being grilled. Yeah, before. yeah. Me neither. Actually, I have, but it wasn't really a podcast as friends, which is why we're here. So we're here in Kingsville, Texas. We're um, doing a story. I'm doing a story for Texas monthly. There's my name drop, <laughs> but it's the Texas monthly website. They haven't let me uh, step up to the big game, the actual print publication. You get in there. But, uh, when's the last time you read a print Texas monthly? Uh, I get one every couple months when our ads run there from work, uh, but I don't actually read them. I just go look at how the ad printed. And and where do you work at? I work at Texas Tech University. Okay. Do you know Jared Foster? I do know Jared Foster. Okay. We'll talk about him a little bit because that's really what this podcast is about. Oh, okay. This is the Jared Foster podcast. Talk, well, we just talk about Jared and okay. how cool he is. Um, so we're here working for on a story for Texas Monthly. We don't know if they're going to run the pictures or not, uh, but Justin's been gracious to come down because this is a subject that he's very interested in. But uh, we're both confident that this is such a unique uh, subject matter that we can we're going to sell it somewhere else and uh, hopefully Texas monthly in the, in the web will run some of these pictures. Um, so what we're here doing and Justin alluded to it earlier is we are doing a story on broken arrow ranch, which the name is kind of confusing because they're not really a ranch. They are 
one of the only, if not the only, company in this in the country that harvests wild game, and they have to be non-native because you cannot sell native game. You cannot sell whitetail or mule deer in Texas. That is illegal. But Texas has a prolific population of non-native species. Uh, Nilgai, which is what we're be observing them harvest tomorrow. Nilgai is indigenous to Pakistan and India. It's a large antelope. It looks like a Dr. Seuss uh, animal. Little head, big body, a lot of good meat, a very delicious animal. And then we have axis, which come from, golly, where are axis? I think they're the I think they're Indian. Okay. Or from that same region. And then we won't be hunting. We won't be, they won't be harvesting axis tomorrow, but that's another dish they sell. Um, they sell black buck, which is another um, Indian continent, I think. It's not from Texas. It's not from Texas. Or the U.S. So in the 30s, giant ranches in Texas started importing exotic animals to hunt for their money bag hunters. And those animals really liked the weather and the environment. And they have multiplied to the point where they compete with native species. And so this company called Broken Arrow in the early 80s, with uh, the help of then Democrat represented Mitt Rick Perry, who was the Republican governor of Texas for a number of years. I believe uh, Justin's photographed him, right? I have. Okay. How was that? Uh, that was interesting. He's, he's a slick guy, huh? Yeah. I mean, I've never had to, I've photographed him at things. I've never had to pose him. But so Rick Perry with, was a Democratic representative at that time. He was a Democrat in the early 80s, and he helped this company. The founders is uh, Mike Hughes, the current owner's Chris Hughes, his son. Mike Hughes was a, a uh, underwater welder and got through with that and wanted to do something different and saw all these uh, exotic game in Texas and wanted to figure out how to serve them to restaurants because he had had game, I guess, other places. And got a law passed where these non-native animals are property of whoever owns the property. Whoever's ranch it is, is their, their property. Really? I did not know that. Yeah. But if it jumps to the other ranch, then it's that guy's property. Yeah. And so it made it legal for those animals to be harvested. And I'm going to kind of fast forward, but he went to the USDA because they said, well, you're going to have to have this animal inspected by, by the USDA. And they said, well, you'll have to have some sort of facility to do it in. And so he built these trailers and then got the government to um, basically legalize it to where he could inspect them. And so whenever they – so what we're going to tomorrow is we're on a high – well, it's not a high-fence ranch because they say high-fence ranches don't stop Neil guy. And they'll pull – they have these trailers, 40-foot-long trailers that have a mobile processing – well, they, they just skin them. They skin them and quarter them. And um, they have a USDA inspector on site. And this is all rural remote. So they said um, they'll harvest an animal. We'll get to that here in a second, how they do that. Um, and then it can be a 30-minute drive to get to the animal? Uh, no, it would be a – he said it would be like a 45 – 30-45 minute drive back to the trailer. Yeah. So it sounds like the truck's going to probably follow the helicopter. Helicopter? Uh out yeah rough you know to a safe distance okay so they're shooting these nail guy from helicopters correct and then they're gonna shoot a few at a time and then truck them back 
while another truck's coming out there to start picking up and then uh, try and have a rotating system like that. So they'll truck them back to these trailers in a pasture on this ranch and they will skin them. I'm real interested in seeing how fast they skin these animals mm-hmm. and quarter them. And then a USDA inspector will come in and make check for parasites. And then this animal will be sold to your finest dining establishments across the United States from Alaska to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. I've had their product in Carmel, California, and it is delicious. So it's a very unique, it's probably one of the, I don't know if it's sustainable, but it's probably one of the most eco-friendly. Well, we're using a helicopter. <laughs> and a bunch of trucks. Yeah. But these animals roam free till they are shot by a man in a helicopter. And then, I mean, it's it's free range. It's, it's, it's free range and as organic as you can get. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you can call it organic because you don't really know what they ate. No. But it's definitely free range and it's completely wild, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. These animals are living their best life until they're not. Yeah. Well, in some cases better because like this is an odd part of this too, is there's a, I forget which planes game animal it is from Africa, but there's a, it's not a kudu. Maybe it is. It's something like that, that there's a ranch here in Texas that the population off that ranch they're using to repopulate the depleted populations in Africa. So they're in some cases, these animals are actually doing better in Texas than they were wherever they came from. Is that kudu or is that a real animal or do you make that up? No, it's a real animal. Okay. What does it look like? <sighs> it looks funny. <laughs> Ernest Hemingway wrote about him a lot. <laughs> Ernest Hemingway. Is he famous for something? I think writing. Oh, geez. Or hunting. I should know that if he's a famous writer. Yeah. They, race car. Well, he, didn't, he said that what, there's only three real sports, mountain climbing, race car driving, and bullfighting. Sounds right. Yeah. Oh, you know that? <laughs> I think he said that. Yeah. I just know he like, Put it around in the Gulf of Mexico looking for Nazi submarines. Well, see, I didn't know that at all. <laughs> what did he put around the Gulf in? Uh, some like cruiser yacht. But he, okay. he used to, he was like a Cuba frequenter before Cuba became modern Cuba. So he, it, it was like Airwolf before the, you ever heard of Airwolf? I have not. Okay. So it was a um, experimental helicopter that a couple of guys took. Um, Jan Michael Vincent, one of the greatest actors of my time. Oh. Huh? The Tom Cruise before there was Tom Cruise, but not really. So they took possession of this helicopter, him and uh, Ernest Bordenine. You ever heard that name before? Mm-mm. Okay. Anyways, I think I got off track here. Our uh, uh, age difference is going to show here soon. How old are you, Justin? I am 30. And I am, I'm just guessing, if you know how old I am. Uh, 53. Pretty good. For 52. 52. Yeah. Okay. Couldn't remember when your birthday is. Yeah. And we met. Um, with uh, Jared Foster's class, Adventure Media. Mm-hmm. In 2019, right? Yeah, yeah. And we've become pretty good friends. Oh, yeah? You think that's odd for 52? Like, all all my best friends are much younger than me. And, <laughs> you know, 20 to 30 to, uh Jared's 40 now. Yeah. Jared and I are probably two of your oldest <laughs> friends. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. So I, I think I talked about this in the last podcast. So I know you've all listened to the first one and are following along, but I was a rider in the early aughts in my thirties and I quit for just over a decade, probably 13 years and picked it back up in 2018 when I got an assignment 
And my second story was about Adventure Media, this class that Jared Foster teaches. And Justin was a uh, TA. Yeah, I was a graduate student and I was Jared's TA that year. Yeah. So we did a bike packing trip, bicycle packing bags on bikes in the back country of Big Bend Ranch State Park. And Justin was this formidable sub, just, just this beast of a man on this bicycle. He, he, Justin rides a bicycle like he wants to hurt it, like he's mad at it. Generally, I was mad at a bike yeah you would like a kid would get lost or something like a like a lone uh calf like a little lost doggy and you would like ride to go help and then you'd you'd come back over a hill behind me and just i could hear your bike just creaking and cracking and you had like a texas tech kit on not your normal backpacking uh clothing and it's like it's like a tour de france outfit i mean yeah for lack of a better term you know it's it's tight most bikepackers dress like they're going to a pearl jam concert that's accurate. Yeah. You think? Uh, so I'm not I, a normal bike packer though. Neither, neither one of us are. No. We're not enamored with a sport to the point where we want to like talk about it all the time. Nope. I, I don't, I'd, I'd rather do it than talk about it. Yeah. It's more fun. And I don't really like going to big bike packing things. Pretty much when I bike pack, it's either with Jared or Justin. Yeah. I mean, I'm normally, it seems like just about most trips I've been on are either with you and Jared or yeah. one or the other. Yeah. So we met um, on this, uh, Story I was working on for bikepacking.com was my second story back into being a, a, a paid writer and really found a, a great group of people to be a part of. And Jared and I've talked about this and I always lament that I didn't keep riding those extra 12 years because I'd be a, a different stage. I would be like the great Pamela Blanc, who is the most prolific Texas freelancer there is. But the freelancing business and, and magazine writing is going away. And I'm kind of in this unique position where I have a uh, finger on the pulse of the next generation. I kind of know what what they want, what they're doing, mm-hmm. and they're not reading magazines. No, they're not. What are they doing? They're looking at their phones a lot. Yeah. How about you think they're listening to podcasts? Some of them do. Okay. I mean, I listen to podcasts. Yeah, I listened too. to like three today trying to get down to this place. How long did you drive? Uh, just over eight hours. Jeez. Well, we appreciate it. <laughs> I know just, I, just to come down here and do this, do this podcast. Well, Maddie reached out to you. That's our producer, Maddie. Yep. And she got you booked. And I said, I don't know if we can get Justin. She goes, I, I've got some favors. I'm going to call in. She's got friends up there in Lovett. Yeah. I think so. So we did that, uh, adventure media trip. And, um, like I said, I met a, a group of people that, I don't want to be anywhere different than I am right now. I'd like to be making more money writing for sure. But uh, to not know Justin or Simon or Jared, I know we talk a lot about Jared or Maddie. Maddie's our pretend producer, but she's not here. She's where's Maddie. She's honestly, I have no idea. Maybe Austin. She, she could not Austin. She could be in the Gulf of Mexico. She could be in the piney woods. She could be in the desert Seminole Canyon. That's where she was last week. Yeah. So Maddie is a, is she a segment producer? You know, I don't know what her exact title is yeah. now. She's a producer of something in the Texas Tech or Texas Tech, Texas Parks and Wildlife TV program. Yeah. So she's a shooter for the PBS program that they, so she gets to do a diverse group. And she's probably the next or the fourth person that I will podcast with. Yeah. I think she'd be great. And I, I knew 
I met Maddie on this bikepacking trip. She was a student. She was like 20, had very little bicycling experience. I think she, she grew up riding motorcycles. Yeah. I don't think she had really any. Yeah. And I've worked with her on a, Jared and I did a motorcycle trip across Texas and she filmed that for the PBS. I've worked with Justin on a uh, kiteboarding story. That one was fun. Yeah. Standing in water for 10 hours straight. Always a good time. That was, uh, so I had this great opportunity to work with lots of different photographers and, uh, when I can, I select my photographer and Justin, Jared, these, these, these are unique photographers. Well, I don't know if they're unique. They're unique in my mind because they take a picture and it tells a complete story. I don't know what it is. You can take a picture. You can see other people take a picture. And I've worked with other photographers that took a picture that they wanted to take. Mm-hmm. Not, It wasn't in line with the story I was telling or even the story. So, I don't know. It's just a certain eye. Well, it's a, it's a part of the genre. Or it is a genre of photography, right? Like it's... It takes like, something you kind of have to develop over time. It's not something you can just do. But then there's also other things I can't do that I'm not good at in photography. What's that? I'm not a very good commercial photographer yet. Uh, I'm not really good at directing people and working with art directors and nitpicking certain details that I'm not used to nitpicking, I'm not, like people's hair and a wrinkle in their clothes or something. I'm like, I'm. I, I was a photojournalist and before my current job. And so it's, I was just like, okay, this is what it is. And then go with that. But yeah, it's just, it's, there's different parts. So photojournalists like taking pictures for AP, like doing news stories, doing news stories. Uh, I, I was known as a sports photographer, I think, but what I really enjoyed and what I think I was actually really good at was kind of the breaking news or feature stuff. Uh, you know, going into a situation, learning how to talk to people, figure out who's who's what, what's going on, and then making them comfortable enough with you that you kind of actually get a real view into whatever their reality is and being able to show something to somebody that they wouldn't always be able to see. Something that without someone else going there and seeing it, they're not going to understand it. What's been something recently that you've done that's a good example of that? Um, I think when I was down in Houston, one that really stands out to me, I've talked about this several times in classes is I shot a story. It was a, it was an immigration story, um, that was going to run on the front page of a newspaper, uh, on the 4th of July. It was a 4th of July citizenship story, basically. And they had, it was a, the, the whole story was a group of people who were immigrating to the U S in various ways in getting their citizenship right before the 4th of July and kind of what that meant to them. And the person I had to go photograph, uh, was a woman named Minerva and she was, let's see, she'd come here in the eighties. She had immigrated illegally from Mexico and did not, take the previous uh, amnesty programs. And so she had just kind of flown under the radar for all these years. And so she'd come here in the eighties and this was in 2022 that I'm photographing her. And so it took her, I think she had become, I forget the technical term, but I guess naturalized in the early two thousands. And then uh, it, from that point it took her basically another 20 years 
uh, if I remember correctly, with the dates uh, to gain her citizenship. And it was it was the weirdest photo shoot I've ever been on. <laughs> so I, I had zero backstory to this. I, I was the only reason I had this story is uh, it was I was photographing it for the Houston Chronicle, and they had had one of their senior photographers die that week or die the week before of cancer, and his funeral was that day. And so they had hired a bunch of freelancers for both writers and photographers. And interns were writing things just to kind of fill the gaps so that the staff could go to this funeral. And uh, so I, I got the story last minute, had really no idea other than it was an immigration story. And this woman was immigrating to the U.S. and didn't know what part of town it was in, didn't know anything about the woman, anything. Um, and I've worked enough around the border that I can get by in the border region of Texas and Mexico with Spanish but I can't speak Spanish fluently. I can't understand it fluently. Um, so when I, what I mean by being able to get by on the border is I can understand en enough in broken Spanish. And then they can generally understand enough in my broken English and Spanish. to we can kind of communicate. This one was from like South central Mexico did not sound anything like I was used to hearing in South Texas or West Texas. Uh, and it was, you know, it would be like a New Yorker and a Texan talking, right? Like they get the same words, but they sound very different. And uh, so I, it turned out she didn't speak any English. I don't speak enough Spanish to communicate with her. I tried calling her on the phone. That didn't go very well. Um, so I called a writer who turned out to be an intern who didn't know anything about the story at all, really. And uh, he had, he, he called her and he spoke Spanish. And he was kind of able to tell her what I needed her to know so that she knew when I was going to be at her house. And I was able to get him to give me the address. And so I go, and it was, it was very odd rolling up. So I'm, I roll up to this house in like a black polo shirt, kind of like I'm just right now, a black polo shirt, jeans, hiking boots, driving a white pickup truck. I roll into one of the roughest trailer parks I've ever seen where like the trailers are falling apart. Uh, the roof has, tires holding it in place dogs running everywhere the numbers are spray painted like five feet tall on the side of the trailers you know not exactly a nice place um and i find her trailer and i pull up and so based on what i've just described you know polo shirt jeans white pickup truck then a dude with like three teardrop tattoos next to his eye comes walking out of this trailer looking at me like are you a cop <laughs> <laughs> and I'm looking at him like, oh crap. And uh, I was like, hey, I'm Justin Rex. I'm here working for the Houston Chronicle. I'm here to photograph, I think, your mom, Minerva. He goes, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's he's supposed to, this is her son who just walked out of this trailer. And he's supposed to uh, uh, translate basically for me uh, when she gets there. She's coming back from work. She was going to the grocery store. Anyway, to kind of make a long story short, she gets home. I talked to her son a little bit. He's been in and out of prison. This is not the best living conditions ever. Uh, you know, her son didn't end up translating for me. He kind of got the beer out of the car, cracked one open and went inside and listened to Jason Haldine for the rest of the day. And, uh, he's, he's really nice, but just not very helpful. And, uh, then this woman, she was really embarrassed cause she was still, she was like a custodian in a commercial building. 
So she had just gotten home from that. And so she was not really in her mind in a state to be photographed. So she ran inside and took like three minutes to completely do her hair and change her clothes, which was insanely fast. And then I proceeded to photograph her and it took a while since I didn't have anyone. I could kind of like, we kind of figured out how to communicate a little bit. Um, but I kind of had to make her comfortable because she was really embarrassed about her living conditions around. And, you know, she's had, she's got a 28 year old son who's been in and out of prison, single mom. She has like 10 or 12 dogs. Doesn't make a ton of money. Has been here forever. And this is her situation. And I thought it was really interesting because, you know, this is supposed to be, my understanding was this is like a heartwarming, upbeat immigration story of look at these people who've come here and made their lives so much better. And I don't know if you've been to like rougher parts of Mexico, but I mean, you can look across the fence in El Paso and Juarez and see a neighborhood that looks just like this. And so, I mean, like maybe her life is better. Maybe it's not. I have no idea. But it was, this is not like the side of U.S. immigration that people really see is like a person who's been working their ass off for decades and is finally becoming a U.S. citizen. It really doesn't, hasn't improved their life that much. Um, and so I ended up, photo- I was able to convince her to photograph her in front of her trailer. And uh, I was able to do that. And that was what ran on the front page. And so it was, it ended up being a very interesting juxtaposition to the rest of the story because it was the way it was written was this very like, Oh yeah, finally we are us citizens. But then the image that went with it was, but yeah, here we are. And this is, this is what our life looks like. Um, and you know, I, especially with how something like that gets characterized in the TV news, you know, there's, binary sides to it there's not this weird go-between area there's a gray area and so i think for what i enjoy doing with my work is being able to show people those gray areas that aren't what they see or what they assume things are right like i don't care what side of the political aisle you're on you could look at that woman and you're gonna you're gonna feel pretty bad about it like you're not gonna this is the kind of person you walk past and don't even look at when you, when you see him. Yeah. And, and I'm mad because my phone updated and I don't know how to use the, the, yeah. the newest functions. And she barely has a phone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so here's what's fascinating about you is that you're doing this, you're taking this kind of picture. Um, quick question. So when did the writer talk to her? I think that day. That day, what did he call her? Do a phone interview, or did he show up interview in person? I have no idea. I, I, he did not interview her in person. I know that. Yeah, and it's very odd for photographers and writers to to spend time together. Normally, they're sent up on separate. Yeah, yeah, and it, that's something that at this writing career two point I'm a, almost always well. Every every job I've done has been with the, the me and the photographer travel together. It's not economical for the magazine or people's time, but it tells a complete story because if he'd have been there in person, he might've written the story differently, but maybe the paper didn't want it written differently. They may not have. And I don't, I mean, generally I, all of my experiences with that publication were, they were very judicious, but also, I mean, it was one of those weeks where things would fall through the cracks and also maybe they're not the ones getting instructed. You know, that 
the news media is weird that way. Um, so, I mean, I have, I have no idea. I can't, I can't really speak to what the backstory was on that, but I mean, it was, I mean, they, they gave you the details of her backstory, but you would if unless someone showed up and photographed her the way I photographed her, you were not going to know what her current situation was. You, You would need to feel that. Yeah. And so you've done that. You take pictures of Tom Brady. Who's who's the other famous person? Like famous people that you've taken pictures of? Uh, Robert Plant. Okay. Lead singer of Led Zeppelin. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, well, for some of your younger listeners, uh, yeah. The uh, I guess Kiss is pretty famous. That's right. You thought you were at the Kiss concert. Yeah, that was my last job before COVID. Um, yeah, I remember that. I don't know. I mean, politicians. I've had to photograph the first lady. You photographed me. Photographed you. Photographed Jared Foster. He's pretty famous. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I, I don't really think of it. Yeah, you I don't, don't keep score. Yeah, you don't. You don't, you don't <laughs> no, no. You, but you, you're doing really gritty photojournalism, and then you're taking pictures of me trying to learn to catboard in Oso Bay, yeah. not not far from here, Corpus Christi. No, really not. And uh, you've uh, photographed me and Jared on a bike trip for a bike picking journal. So it's pretty, pretty diverse photographer. Is that normal for photographers to, to have that, that range? Uh, for freelancers, I think it is. Um, uh, you kind of have to have it. I'm not a freelancer full-time anymore. Yeah. What, what's your, what's your daytime job? What's your regular? Uh, so now I work at Texas Tech University as one of the marketing photographers. There's two of us in the central marketing office there. And so we cover anything academic and research related. Uh, and anything that you know we're going to use as a university to advertise and you know push forward our image and mission, uh, recruit students, all that kind of stuff. And that's where you graduated from. And it is. Um, why did you choose Texas Tech? Uh, this is kind of dumb. Um, I had looked at several different schools, and I I literally got on Google and Googled photojournalism programs in Texas. And, or something to that effect. And uh, I had St. Edwards University, University of Texas, and Texas Tech University show up. Uh, St. Edwards is private and really expensive. <laughs> so I didn't go there. Uh, UT was interesting, but it's in Austin. I, I'd, I looked at UT because I had, for a brief moment in time, a thought that I could walk onto that swim team. Uh, which I actually, in reality, had zero chance or hope of doing. Uh, and then I blew my shoulder out right about the time it would have been to start talking about them for that. Uh, so that killed that dream pretty quick. So then the last one left was Texas Tech. And I came here, took a tour, or came went there and took a tour. And uh, I was like, yep, this will work. <laughs> so I actually, I had no idea that Wyman Menzer had taught there or had come from there. He was the state photographer at Texas. And I had grown up looking at his stuff. I had no idea that Jared Foster was there. I went solely off of a Google search. Yeah, that's as good as any. And and you probably like I've never been enamored with Austin. I, I like the food there, but it's just not. At, you know, when when I was younger, most girls you'd meet or most people are like, oh, you know, I want to move to Austin. And I just I like I like it, but I, I feel like other than the Mexican food, it's it's a bit overrated as far as it's not the best outdoor scene by far um their mountain bike trails are unmarked and you have to know somebody to to figure them out and 
traffic and it's expensive. So I, I mean, I like going, but it's just, you know, I can see how you gravitated probably, probably looked at a Google image of Texas tech and go, that's some wide open spaces. I can. Well, they, uh, so by the time I got to tech also, they, uh, I'd quit swimming and I had reintroduced myself to cycling, which I had done when I was younger. Um, and they had a, a collegiate cycling team that was sanctioned by team USA. And so I was like, Oh, okay, well, there we go. Like I can, I can go race. I can have, I, at, at, honestly, at that point in time, I was in community college. Uh, I had really no interest in going to college. Uh, I was, I wasn't forced into it by any means, but it was strongly suggested that I should attempt college. And so I was looking for an option that was, something that I could at least stay sane in. And I decided that a photo program was something I could, I mean, I already decided that's kind of the direction I wanted to go as a photojournalist. Um, and so between the cycling team and then the program, I was like, okay, I, I can, plus it's way out in the base of the panhandle in West Texas. So, I mean, it was a place that I could easily, you know, adapt to and I thought I could enjoy. And so that's why I picked it. Yeah. There's something special about Lubbock and the panhandle and Simon, the other person I met on that first adventure media trip. Um, we're working on some, maybe a motorcycle travel show for PBS and kind of my theme with that. Uh, Simon, and I go back and forth. Simon's he's like, we need to know what your motivation is. I'm like, my motivation is to find unique people. And, but like, Lubbock harbors some unique artists and unique talent like Buddy Holly, most known, but Mac Davis, uh, Waylon Jennings, that whole area. And I, I say this all the time that Lubbock, people who are from there or have kind of fallen in love with it, they don't know what they can't do. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Austin, you're kind of like told what you can do or you have to meet expectations. That's my perception anyways. In Lubbock, you just kind of like, you tell someone you're going to do something, they're like, well, all right, whatever. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to learn how to weld and build a snake in my field. And, you know, you make some art and no one no one judge you. Well, they may judge you, but you're just kind of left to your own devices. Oh, they'll definitely judge you. They just won't tell you. Yeah. There's no expectations and there's no caste system. Like there is in Austin where you kind of have to have this adventure credential. And uh, I, I think everything's wide open. Like the, like the space. Yeah. Well, I mean, everybody's, everybody out there has been left up to their own devices for so long. They're not, they don't care what people from the outside world say. They'll yeah. just be like, okay, whatever. Yeah. And you gotta be tough as nails to live out there because it gets colder than heck. And hotter than hell. It's just, well, I've said this before, uh, the hottest and coldest place I've ever been is San Angelo. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> we, I have mountain biked at that state park, and it was so hot, I thought my skin was going to melt, and it's been so cold that I thought my fingers were going to break. Well, it's in kind of a weird spot. It's it kind is. of in like a bowl. Yeah. And it, well, I mean, it's not West Texas. It's not the hill country. It's no man's land. It is. It is hot. It's San Angelo. <laughs> <laughs> it is cold. They have black pearls there in their, in their river. Do they really? Yeah. I don't know if they're black, but they have some sort of river pearl huh. that they're known for. I had no idea. Yeah, I knew that river when it ran. Was it Concho River? Yeah, Concho River. Yeah, there's Concho River pearls. I don't think they're black. I made that up. I made it more exotic than it is, but it sounded cool. They sell them there on uh, downtown. Make various pieces of jewelry out of them. Yeah. So, 
you told me earlier that you uh, wanted to be a writer. But you- I, I wanted to be a journalist. I don't know if I wanted to be a writer, but yeah. I, I just assumed you had to be a writer. And so that was, I was just like, okay, that's what I want to do. Yeah. And uh, I, so I kind of quickly figured out that wasn't going to work out. <laughs> Why is that? Um, and I don't know, maybe this is a, putting, your, putting limits on yourself that you shouldn't do. But I had, so when I was born, I was, I had lead poisoning when I was born. Oh my gosh. Uh, so I was born in the Heights in Houston. Uh, all his houses were built in the twenties and thirties. They all had lead based paint on the outside. And in 1993, the protocol from whatever governing body that would regulate that kind of thing was the safe way to mitigate lead based paint was to sand it off while wearing a painter's mask, which just creates lead dust. (laughs) Uh, and so my parents were kind of renovating this house while my mom was pregnant. And so, uh, by the time she had me, I had absorbed enough of it through her breathing it in that uh, I was born with it. And so I have pretty rough dyslexia from that occurrence, uh, uh, probably among a bunch of other things, I'll probably have like bone cancer or something in five years, but who knows the, uh, the, uh, anyway, so because of that, it took me a long time to learn how to read and write. I, I couldn't read very well until I was eight or nine. Um, and when I was, uh, like I, I remember watching the news and seeing reporters on the news and thinking that was, you know, something interesting, something I could do a little cool, you know, seeing Dan rather reporting overseas somewhere in some old army jacket just, just looked like a fun job. Uh, but couldn't read, couldn't write. And I was like, okay, well I'm a loser. So <laughs> That's not going to work out very well. Um, But what was interesting is during my childhood, so when I was eight, 9-11 happens. And then two years later, uh, Iraq gets invaded. And I'm learning how to read while all this is going on. And the only things I could really read, like I I could read enough lines to be able to read a caption or a cut line on the front page of the newspaper underneath a photo. And so I would look at photos and read captions. And that was how I got my information because my parents got the newspaper every day. Uh, and so that was kind of how I started learning about what was going on in the world that or watching the news with my parents. And uh, so through that, I just kind of started getting this weird interest in photography and photojournalism. And I just always kind of stuck with it. And I kind of, I say always, I, I kind of ignored it for a while. Did, you know, normal weird kid stuff. And then, uh, around the time I was a junior or senior in high school, uh, a movie called Restrepo came out that was on Afghanistan. And, uh, there was a photographer named Tim Hetherington that was one of the, or that was one of the shooters on that. And I started looking at his work and I got really interested in it. And I was like, Okay, hold on. Because I'm, st- you know, you're getting close to 18. You're almost a senior in high school. You're like, I should probably f- start figuring out what I'm supposed to do with my life. And that kind of seemed like an intriguing path. And then Tim Hetherington died from a mortar in Libya. And that, for some reason, didn't phase me. Obviously, I didn't go down that path in terms of like being a conflict warp reporter. But, uh, but yeah, so that was kind of what pulled me that direction. It was just seeing all those things as a kid, kind of having a limited way of gathering information and then 
just staying interested in it. Yeah. Uh, Sebastian Younger was one of my um, go-to guys that motivated me to write. Yeah. And um, John Krakow, Krakauer, um, at that time, that's when you could make a living writing for magazines. Outside Magazine at that time was a real force. And you could, and so they wrote these first person adventure stories. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's kind of odd that you were, um, inspired by, by that as well. Um, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't know you, you were a younger fan. Oh, um, perfect storm. That was first, that was written first of all as a piece and outside. And then it turned into the book and he started, his career didn't start way I think he was in his forties, if not late. I think he was in his forties. And I remember thinking at that time, I was in my thirties. I'm like, oh man, if I if I don't make it till I'm 40, I don't wanna, you know, and I'm restarting <laughs> at 50. Well, I restarted at 48 and uh I'm gaining a little bit of momentum and kind of fell into this podcasting thing. And we'll see where that goes. But I like it because it's uh tactile, it's instantaneous. Whereas if I was writing this interview, I would have to go back and pull quotes and had to structure it, but I kind of like thinking on my feet and, and drilling down on the enigma that is Justin Rex. <laughs> I always say Justin Rex, I asked him yesterday if everybody calls him by his full name and he says, no, sometimes people call me Justin or just Rex, but I always say Justin Rex. Yeah. Or a variety of other things yeah. that are less yeah. hey, kind. Hey. <laughs> hey dummy. No. Yeah. Or worse. <laughs> but you're firmly generation Z, right? You think? No, I'm I'm a early millennial. I'm a I'm a late. Yeah, I'm a millennial. You're a late millennial. Late millennial. Like at the very end of the. I think the cutoff was '97, and I was born in '93. Um, I don't know. I Justin is a very interesting, resourceful old soul. He's mentored me on hunts, and we've traveled together. It, it's a strange life and if you set boundaries on things on like i can only be friends with people in my age or you say millennials are worthless or gen zers um the ones that are doing it they're curious they're better than the ones that were doing it and curious when when i was in my 30s i i can't imagine doing the things that uh these kids have done in college i would i'd have been way too scared to do a adventure media backpacking course where I'm sleeping on the ground for five, six days and carry my own stuff. Yeah. But I mean, like it's, I mean, most of those kids were scared. Uh, but they're very ambitious. Yeah. They're very ambitious, but I mean, like you need to do things that are kind of intimidating to you. I think, especially when you're in college, it's uh, it kind of just forces them into a unique situation where they have to grow or fall apart. And hopefully they grow if they fall when we've seen them fall apart. Um, but even the ones that fall apart, like learn something about themselves. Yeah. And I haven't seen too many, like just completely, I know there has been in past classes that that just go, that, that, you know, just stop and can't go any further. I haven't been a part of that. Um, everyone I've seen, like I'm not a social person Uh and you you strike me the same way as kind of being a little bit of a loner. Really? Um, you're the first person that said that to me. That you're a little bit of a loner? Yeah. I think you enjoy being alone. I do at times, but I'm pretty outgoing. I mean, you have to be pretty outgoing to go up and talk to random people and talk to them taking their photo. Maybe it's because you're so independent. 
I'm maybe I'm getting independent and loner confused, but you just, uh, you go your own way. Yeah. You don't really, um, check which way the wind's blowing before you do something. Yeah, that's true. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> it's a more difficult way to go. Trust me. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Cause you kind of like size people up and you go, yeah, I'm going to move on. Yeah. But I mean, like also, if you know this, I mean, you've seen enough people and talked to enough people where you're just like, ah, I don't really want to be a part of that. Or maybe I do want to be a part of this. And you've, you kind of just know what you're looking for. Well, I've, I said before I met all y'all that once you get to a certain age, you don't make any new friends. I probably said this in my forties. Yeah. 43, 44, 45 comes around 47, 48, 47, 48. I started making some of the best friends of my life. Mm-hmm. He was working Oveja Negra, uh, Lane Wilson, Steph Perko, very, very good friends. Changed my life meeting those two. And then working with y'all and being a part of the Texas Tech program of Intermedia uh, changed my life. And now I mean, I'm sitting in a hotel room <laughs> <laughs> with Justin Rex, and we're about to go watch uh, a Neil Guy harvest where they uh, plan to uh, harvest anywhere from 20 to 50 animals tomorrow. And those animals will be skinned, quartered, and then they will wait two weeks to dry age, and then they'll send them out to restaurants. Yep. Sounds about right. That is cool. It's very cool. I'm so excited to see this. Yeah. And here's another thing. Justin's here on his own dime. Um, We may get the pictures in the Texas Monthly web piece. We may not. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of person Justin is. And and I remember when I mentioned it to him, I was like, I think he's going to want to come do this because it's a cool it's a cool experience and we both talked we're going to get this we're going to get this uh another outlet for this story because it's just such a, a unique thing that yeah and there's enough other tie-ins to it that we can loop it into something else if we need to i mean it's it's just cool yeah so beginning of this year we did something really interesting what was that we did we uh went to your family's place and uh we were able to shoot to odd ad and we'd always heard those things are disgusting they stink they taste bad they're shoe leather or made out of shoe leather and uh that they're just not good and uh we figured out a way to cook them and they actually don't taste that bad no and so we were doing like kind of a i guess we haven't really finished it yet but a a food story but looped in with hunting and how to you know do it yourself yeah and, and like hunting whitetail and mule deer in Texas, you're going to have to hunt over a feeder or, or out of it. Cause, um, one, they're everywhere. And so the animals are going to gravitate towards a feeder. You don't really hunt. I mean, you wait and you have to shoot and you know, you got to kind of figure out where they're going to be, but all day you hunt. Yeah. I mean, well, and it, it just, that's a nature of the terrain. I mean, like with a whitetail, the way whitetails behave in the terrain you normally hunt them in, whether you're hunting them over a feeder or not, you're waiting. Um, and oftentimes the property in Texas is small enough that it's not conducive yeah. to doing anything else other than just sitting in a spot and hoping something walks past or hoping something walks out in front of the feeder. Audad are on a much wider spread of grounds. Uh, they're in Canyon land and you kind of have to work to get to them. Like you can't, they're not just going to come walking past you. You have to, you have to get up, you have to find them and then you got to get to them and then you got to get to a place where you can shoot them and then you got to 
get them off the rocks. Mm -hmm. That's what we did. We both grabbed a horn and drugged this uh, Audad for about 45, 50 minutes down to where we could put it and then skin it. So he got one, I got one. Mine was a little younger and mine was pretty tender. Mine was a lot more tender than I saw shot in Axis, which is a exotic and uh, it was tough mm-hmm. and the odd ed was much much um a much more um easy easy eating meat more more uh, i don't want to say it was tender by any means but it was good if and i don't know yeah this is going to play upon some joe rogan stuff but i mean when you eat this meat it really makes you feel different than eating cattle yeah it's also got a different flavor I mean, it's got a, not that the, uh, the audit actually was pretty mild, but like venison has a, it's unique. Each one's unique and it's going to, it's pretty healthy for you. And so you just, when you're eating it and you're eating it quite a bit, I mean, you just feel better. You're not eating crap. You know, you're not eating Whataburger yeah. like I had for lunch today and I feel like crap right now. Um, or Mexican food. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling a little porky. And yeah. We both sitting in a truck all day and eating crap. But I mean, like if you're eating, if you're eating clean food, you just feel better. And this is pretty clean. There's nothing really to it. When these animals are athletic and you know, it's the, the terrar I use this a lot with this group. It's, I mean, their terrar is what they eat and it's, it's uh, active and moving and they're free range animals. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I've had, had people, friends and non-friends get onto me before for some of the stuff I'd, I'd do with it, like turning it into jerky or cooking it into crazy dishes and stuff that I'm not just like enjoying it for this really clean piece of meat that it is. Oh. But I've, I try to incorporate wild game food or wild game meat into as many pieces of food as I can just because I enjoy it. Are these hunting friends that are getting onto you or not? Like- I've, yeah, I've had hunting friends. I've had non-hunting friends. Why the non-hunting friends care? Uh, I mean, they're just like, well, why would you waste this, waste something in chili or jerky when it's such a? Would you ask them what? What'd you have for lunch today? Yeah. Well, no, they were they were saying it like this is, like they they're they're cherishing this piece of backstrap like it's a yeah. gold bar. I'm like, yeah, I got like twelve of those in my freezer, so <laughs> I got to do something with them. Yeah, you know, when I interviewed Justin for the this first story back in 2019, he, how many deer did you have in your freezer that year? Uh, three. Three. And that's what he was existing on was he, he calculated that it would be cheaper for him to kill a bunch of deer. Yeah. Or harvest. Yeah. Well, I killed them. I mean, you, ha- you got to kill them to harvest them. So, I mean, you say what you want, but the, uh, the, uh, I had figured out that when I was in graduate that last year, graduate school and my parents had uh, just bought a piece of land in central Texas that I could, I could plan my trips around trips home around hunting trips or trips to see them around hunting. And so I just made sure that every time I went home, I had a rifle and a cooler in my truck and a knife and I could handle what I needed to handle when I went through there. Uh, that way I wasn't spending any extra money on gas. And uh, that if I bought the stuff to process it, at my home, meat grinders, all the stuff to cut it up with, uh, uh, vacuum sealer that I could actually save a, quite a bit of money and eat really healthy and just do that. And so that's what I did. 
uh, that last year grad grad school, which actually worked well because I finished grad school in December of 2019. And uh, so I was saving money and had a lot of pretty self-sufficient meat access through COVID (laughs) when people couldn't buy meat and there wasn't a whole lot of money floating around. So I was able to set me up pretty well for being ready for a rainy day. And you processed all these deer in an apartment. Yeah. One bedroom apartment in Lubbock, Texas. They were quartered, but you had processed them. Yeah. I mean, you bring them back quartered. It would have been hilarious if I brought a whole deer back to that place. That would have been, I would love, love to explain that to the landlord, but, uh, it's always weird to me when I see people with whole deers on the back of pickups and stuff. Yeah. I mean, like they're just taking it to the processor. They're not going to, they're not. Right. And sometimes if the processor is really close and it's cold outside and you can throw ice in that cavity, I think that's fine. But a lot of times the processor is not that close. It's Texas. So it's not that cold outside for most of your season. Uh, like these guys down here in South Texas are saying, oh yeah, it's really cool. I'm like, it's 70 degrees. It's not that cool. Um, so yeah, I mean like you, that's not really setting you up for success in terms of high quality meat. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what this is all about. Some high quality protein. Yeah. Superfood. What would be your perfect assignment? We'll close out with this last question. Oh man, I have no idea. Um, you've probably done it and you just like, like you don't have a perfect assignment because you're so fluid. You're like, I don't know if there'd be a subject that would be the perfect assignment. I, I would enjoy, and I've had stuff that's very close to this, what, either in my current job uh, at Texas Tech or when I was freelance. A, a perfect assignment would be a magazine-style story w- that I can photograph over multiple days in a remote location on a fully funded budget out of my truck. Uh, not out of my truck, but like being able to drive in camp out of my truck because my truck when i was a freelancer i set my truck up basically as an office and so i've got everything that i would need to function for an indefinite amount of time in that truck and uh you know just be able to tell the story the right way without really any immediate deadline that would require me to leave in a couple days obviously i would need a deadline so i'd actually get something done but (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> not a I, I want like a, a one month turnaround time not a one day turnaround time well in this writer photographer world we need deadlines or we won't finish what we're doing yeah and actually before we close out that, was, that reminds me there's something i was going to say about that earlier if you have a writer that's good that understands how to deal with people and a photographer that's good and understands how to deal with people and you put the two of them together like that actually turns something into a much better story than it would have been than if you have a, each of them working independently of each other. Conversely, if one of the two of them is not used to that, it's not going to go very well. But like if you can get like two people that work well together, that understand what's going on. And that's what I enjoy coming and doing stuff like this with you with, or that's why I, I can't talk tonight. That's why I enjoy coming and doing stuff like this with someone like you is because we work well together. And I know that whatever we're going to do is going to be probably pretty good. The, the pictures are going to match the words. And right. it's so crazy that that's not something that's normally done. A perfect example, we'll finish with a good praise of of, of uh, Justin and I. Um, sometimes I call him not the Jared, but that's, that's the whole thing. 
this kiteboard story we did, I, I we, we came down to Corpus Christi and I was going to learn to kiteboard because I'd done a bunch of stories for Texas Parks and Wildlife Magazine, biking, motorcycling, paddleboarding. And I told my editor, I was like, well, I've done land, sea, and air. Mm-hmm. I've done land and sea. I need to go to the air. And she's like, okay. So we did this kiteboard story and I learned to kiteboard in a day, which it, usually it's a two-day affair. Well, learn to kiteboard is a relative term. Yeah, I never really learned to ride. I was exhausted. Well, both of us were exhausted because we were in the water for like two straight days. Yeah. Well, he was in the water for two straight days. I was in the water for all day, like eight hours because there's a whole process. You're supposed to do it in two. But the first day we came out, the wind was blowing so hard that it was not uh, not good condition for someone new. But Justin and I just rode or just roamed around the catboard scene and just met all these cool people. And that turned out to be the best part of the story was this stoke that comes with kiteboarders. Like I always say that your most fluid people are climbers and surfers. Like you watch a climber and surfer walk across the ground. They move differently than other athletes because they're so in tune with, with, with the earth. Yeah. They touch it. They feel it. They live with it. And kiteboarders are the same way because they, they harvest, they harness the wind. You know, one of the most powerful things in mother nature. And so they, they are some of the happiest people I've ever met. They're pretty happy. Yeah. They enjoyed their life. Yeah. Except that one guy. Yeah, but he worked in the oil field. Yeah. <laughs> he was mad after the fact when the story ran, he was mad that there weren't enough photos of him. Uh, was he really? Yeah. He he, he commented on the Facebook page that once that story hit, you know, our cover girl, she turned out really great. And then, of course, the master, uh, yeah. Jeff, was his name? Sounds right. The guy that lived in the red van. Yeah, or he didn't live in it. That's just that was his. He was a no. He was a graphic designer. That was his. Jeff. Jeff. Chillicote. Chillicote. And so when the story ran, um, I was on the Facebook page, and there was all these comments. People like, "Oh yeah, this is awesome." And that one guy, he was like, "Yeah." He goes, "That photographer stood in the water and took a ton of pictures of me, and they didn't run one." They actually did run one, or maybe they just ran one. But he can't tell it's him. Yeah, it was the it was that two page spread. Like it him? was the sunset with it was a silhouette. That's I'm pretty great. sure. I'm pretty sure that was him. Okay, I thought that was Jeff. I can't. I mean, I can't. I think that was the only guy that was out there that late, but I can't remember. That's pretty cool. That was your first gig with TPW, and you got the cover. Yeah, that was fun. That was that was a fun gig. I think I had three covers that that year. Yeah, Texas Parks and Wildlife. So that was a good year for you. That was a huge year. Jared and I talked about that. We 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 recapped. I said, let's talk about 2021. Yeah. I was like, that was a banner year for both of us. And we went through, I don't know, the whole thing again, but, and then each of us did individual things on our own. And I thought, okay, I was like, all right, 21, 22 is going to be just as good. And we, I ended 2021. I'm like, I can barely feed myself. And I've worked all year long. Yeah. That's how my 2021 was. (laughs) (laughs) If it wasn't for my wife, um, we might've starved to death, but I mean, I, I, Drove across Texas, rode across Texas, kiteboarded, sailboarded. Well, no, I kiteboarded the next year. But that's how this business goes. Yeah. And you got to, you got to. I mean, you could work 365 days a year and barely make rent. <laughs> well, and I'm not the kind of rider that I can write that fast. Yeah. I mean, like six stories a year. I mean, it takes me, like one a month would be a lot for me to write. And I, I'm a slow writer. I know that. Someone like Pamela Block, she's pretty prolific and she can churn them out. But I haven't seen 
a lot of her stuff lately, so I don't know what she's doing. Oh, she had uh, ACL surgery. Oh, really? And I've never met Pam, but uh, I was like, man, that would be a great person to do a podcast with. Oh, yeah. You should get her. Just because she's done it. And anytime I talk to students about riding, I go, Pam LeBlanc is the person you model yourself. Of course, you'd have to do it differently now because the way she did it, you can't do it. Oh, yeah. I mean, like even I'm only 30 and even the way I got started doesn't exist anymore for a photographer. And so like the way she like you could you would want to model yourself in her style, not in her style, but like the way she goes about getting work done. Yeah. Yeah, Her work ethic, but her business model, you probably can't copy, but she, she also garnered a ton of contacts. And like, I've seen her stuff in the Stephenville newspaper about four years ago, she wrote a piece on spider mountain, the mountain bike park and, and the Stephenville newspaper. Like that's just a, that's just a, um, a, a um, relationship that she probably garnered with a certain editor and could get that done. But that's all. I mean, that's kind of the freelance way of doing it though. I mean, like you yeah. gotta, whoever, whatever little place or big place calls you probably need to take it. <laughs> but as we know, or pitch it to them, that newspaper story probably paid like a little newspaper. Oh yeah. That was. So I, you know, we don't want to throw numbers around, but it's, I did a story I mean, I'll say it's a Gannett paper, so it didn't pay much. Yeah. <laughs> well, I did a magazine story for a, a Texas motorcycle magazine. I shared this in the last podcast, and I made $150. And that's, I like, I made $150 on my first web story in 1999. Yeah. And I was like, I did it because it was a motorcycle feature, and I'd already promised the magazine I was going to do it. I thought I was getting paid 400 but. It was 150 and it was the worst experience I've ever had. Yeah. And I mean, like, sometimes that's just kind of the way it is, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I've got a byline and my picture in a glossy magazine that nobody will read. <laughs> and that sums it up. All right. I think we should close it out and put our gear up because Justin and I got to get up probably about 430 all right. Well, this has been fun, Justin. Yeah, man. Glad did, we did this. Did you enjoy this? I did. Yeah. Yeah. We, we got, we got a real setup. We got some arms and, um, microphones. So we look legit. Yeah. This is most legit podcast setup I've ever seen. Yeah. And how many podcasts have you been on? This one. All righty. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's uh, get played out to some Jared Foster guitar music. All right. Good talking to you. Good talking to you, man. All right. We'll see you in the morning. Yep. I will see you in the morning. Bye.